Hey everyone, thanks for listening. For my friends and family, it's no secret that I love video games. From a very early age, I was hooked on them. And by the late 90s, I became active in the gaming industry. Along my journey, I met amazing writers, artists, scientists, and women. Despite 48% acknowledging they have played video games, only 6% of women identify as video gamers. On top of that, the gaming industry has been hit with several critical issues with toxic cultures, equality, violence, diversity, and inclusion. Joining me today are two legendary guests, Kate Edwards, an award-winning advocate and on Forbes Women 50 Over 50 list, along with Joni Kraut, CEO of a fabulous organization, Women in Games International, to cover all of these topics and more. To support the show, visit chrishood.com slash show, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on social media, or you can email me directly, show at chrishood.com. I'm Chris Hood, and let's get connected. Connecting. Access granted. It's the Chris Hood Digital Show where global business and technology leaders meet to discuss strategy, innovation, and digital acceleration. Five, four, three, two, one. Your digital evolution starts now. Here's your host, Chris Hood. I am so excited to have both of you here today. And since all of the best games have incredible origin stories, Joni, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and how you got into the gaming industry? Sure. Um, I actually kind of accidentally fell into the games industry, which the more people I talk to, it seems like the more that is actually a pretty common story. I started off as a writer. I was writing for a newspaper. I was the editor at my school paper. Um, I love researching things and I love story. Story is very important to me. So I play a lot of RPGs. <laughs> so I actually ended up not loving how much gray area there was within some of these stories and within the way people were pitching some of the stories that were affecting other people's actual lives. Um, And so I moved from writing into data. And it was like, having finance, having data, it was it was black or red, there was no gray area. These are the data points. This is this is how it is. These are the facts. And so I'm a huge data nerd. I love Excel. I love I love color coordinating data sets. I really got into data and then finance because of data. And so just economics and analytics and um, just kind of really studying things to be able to tell the bigger picture story from very specific facts and very specific data points. I kind of grew up without much means. And so, uh, you know, the only computer I really had access to was at the local library. Uh, and so when I went to college, I was needing to learn about computers and how to use computers. It was going to be essential, especially as an accountant, getting into software and everything. Uh, and so I was I was dating a guy at the time and he was like, you are being so analytical with this. You are, you are not having fun with trying to learn computers. You need to gamify this. And so he got me a copy of World of Warcraft. And so in playing Warcraft, I learned how to troubleshoot my computer. I learned how to actually learned how to build my computer. Everything from cooling to why am I failing at this raid? Why did I just disconnect during a raid? And it's because my fan and you can't put things on top of your computer and just different little things like that. So that really got me into gaming. And um, at the time I found a mouse and it was, it was just like, butter on a warm pan. It was just amazing mouse. And so I was in my, in the stage of my career where I really wanted to care. I really wanted to move up in my, in my career and and get that next step. But 
I just didn't care about my job at the time. And I had a mentor who said, what is it that makes you happy? What is it that gets you up on a Monday morning? What is it that you look forward to? And I, I without even thinking, I said, my mouse. I love my mouse. And I love being able to play this game with my mouse. And she said, go home and look and see who makes that mouse. And those are going to be your people. Those are going to be the people that are the same passion level as you. They're going to be passionate about the same game as you. It was a mouse created specifically for the game that I was playing. So I went home and I, I was Steel Series, and I was like, "What is it, Steel Series?" And so um, I looked them up, and I was like ten minutes from their HQ. They were hiring for a finance person, and I was just like, "What are the odds?" Uh, and so that was kind of my segue into the games industry. They were working with uh, esports professionals to build out the best peripherals possible. They are the most winningest peripherals in the in the industry. They have really really high quality and. I got to work with these people who were passionate about gaming, who are passionate about esports, who are passionate about the games industry, and ever since then I've just been hooked. So I've been in tech and gaming for over 20 years now, and just kind of creating that space for other people within the industry was so important to me. While working at Steel Series, I actually met Keisha Howard from the Sugar Gamers, and they were creating a really positive space for people to just come to connect who were interested in gaming. And it was a really powerful opportunity to just be in this space of people who were not the normal or the the traditional gamers. And so there was a lot of women, there were a lot of people of color, there were just a lot of underrepresented people in this space. And a couple of years later, when I found Wiggy, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are doing this, but on an international level. And the focus is more on professional development. So when I started at Wiggy, I was their CFO, I was doing the finances, and as I was pulling all the data and analytics, I was like, we could be doing so much more. We could be doing so much more and on such a bigger scale. Uh, and so finally, they were kind of like, take it, see what you can do. Um, and we've rebuilt the, we redid the logo, we rebuilt the programs portfolio. We now have over 90 programs, workshops, panels, and initiatives uh, that we run every year. And it's just a huge opportunity to create that mentorship and that quality professional development opportunity. But we also do kind of bring that gamifying aspect to it as well. So we're helping you level up, creating that diverse representation and normalizing more people in the industry on the professional side. Are you playing Dragonflight? Heck yes, I'm playing Dragonflight. <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to connect offline then. I've got my warlock going. Kate, what's interesting is you have a similar story. I do. So my my background, uh, again, just like Joni, is not in the game industry initially. I've been now working in the game industry. It'll be uh, 30 years come April 2023, so just a couple months from now. Um, but the way I got into it is I'm actually a geographer and a cartographer, and I was doing my graduate school work in, in uh, the Seattle area where I'm based at the University of Washington. And I just finished my master's degree use, about using VR for cartography. That was way back in 1991 when VR hardly even worked. But um, I got a call from our geography department, got a call from Microsoft because they needed a cartographer to work on Encarta Encyclopedia which a lot of people don't remember unless you're of a certain age, but that was the, the last major encyclopedia before Wikipedia showed up online. And so I went over and thought it was going to be a six-month contract to do the maps for Encarta, which was a super fun project. They paid well. I was a starving grad student who had just gotten married. So it's just like, yeah, I'm going to do this work. And after six months, they're like, okay, we're going to extend your contract because now we need you to work on this sure, why not? And that just kept going until they eventually offered me a full-time position to be what we called the geopolitical strategist for Microsoft, because they needed somebody who could help them navigate a lot of the complicated 
uh, cartographic issues like, you know, how do you show Taiwan? How do you show Western Sahara? How do you show the West Bank? You know, all of these sensitive geopolitical disputes around the world. And I could do that. That was part of what I knew. That's part of what I did. And so I took the full-time position. I kind of put my PhD on hold. And uh, eventually, you know, initially I was working only on the mapping products at Microsoft. But then as I got questions from all over the company, when they found out that there was a geographer working there, like, is this gesture okay? Is this flag okay? Is this okay? Is that color okay? And I could answer most of those questions based on my backgrounds. And I'm just like, this is super fun. So I'm, you know, I actually ran an internal alias called Dr. Ware at Microsoft. And so basically people would just email Dr. Ware and I would just, you know, answer questions. So I guess I sort of unofficially got my PhD. But um, eventually I saw this huge need that arose in the late 90s where the company was making some grievous mistakes. Like one product group would make a huge mistake in a market like South Korea. Then a few months later, another product group who has no reason to talk to the other one because they're so siloed in the company made a very similar mistake and got the government very, very upset. And that gave me the idea that there needs to be a way to coordinate this kind of knowledge across the company. And so I created a proposal um, to create a new kind of team at Microsoft called geopolitical strategy. And it took me about seven months to get approval. I had to go through five different VPs before the last one finally said within five minutes, he's like, done, let's make this happen. And that's what got me working on games because my mandate for that team at Microsoft covered every product in the company. So I had already been working on Windows and Office and stuff like that with a bunch of cultural and, and geopolitical issues. But then the games had just had gotten started. We had a lot of PC games at that time. The Xbox was kind of in the background at that point. But that's what got me starting to work on games. Basically did it guerrilla fashion, talking with the teams and reaching out to them and saying, hey, how can I help? But then eventually it got more formalized after the, the games division made a couple of really grievous errors. And so after that, it became a normal thing. And, and that's when I found my true calling because I'm, I'm doing this work, which I call culturalization on video games. And I'm like, I could not be happier because I've been a gamer ever since Pong showed up when I was seven years old, way back when. Um, I love games. I love the medium. And um, and yeah, so that's how I basically got my start in games. So when I left Microsoft in 2005 to become self-employed, I, I decided to focus primarily on video games as my consulting work. And even to this day, almost 30 years later, it's, it's, I would say about 80% of my work is in games. The other 20% is still like cartographic and geopolitical consulting for some companies. But then after I'd been in the industry a while around, you know, I, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, I'd been around for almost 20 years already in the industry. And, and I really kind of grew this concern uh, and I guess an advocacy side of the work I was doing. I mean, I love working on games, but I love the people I work with even more. And I love being around them. I mean, they are definitely my group. You know, they are my people. But I also saw a lot of things like the rampant sexism going on in the workplace and crunch and work-life balance problems. And so I started finding a way to be more vocal about that, which eventually led to me running the International Game Developers Association starting in 2012 to speak out about these issues and to be an advocate on behalf of developers and so I had a great time in that role, minus the fact that I was running the organization during Gamergate, which made me one of their primary targets during that time with death threats and harassment and all that fun stuff. But it was worth it because I knew we were fighting the good fight. And I also knew that on the in the long term, we were definitely on the right side of history 
with what we were fighting for. And so then eventually I left that position in 2017. And then a couple of years later, the Global Game Jam, which came out of the IGDA around the time that I took over the IGDA, the Global Game Jam approached me and asked if I would be interested in taking over that organization, which I did and ran that for three years and had a great time because the Global Game Jam being the world's largest game creation event is just amazing fun. It's just you're, you're, you get to interact with cultures and people from all around the world. Over 100 countries participate, tens of thousands of people. And it's just it was such a fun event. I'm still on the board of directors of that. I'm on the board of directors of TakeThis.org, which deals with mental health in the game industry and several other uh, advisory roles, just because I love keeping that advocacy vibe going because I still want to see this industry change for the better. But I'm still doing my culturalization consulting and then uh, more recently during the pandemic, I did a pivot and I co-founded a company called Set Jetters, which is a film tourism app because visiting filming locations has been a hobby of mine since I was a teenager. So yeah, so a lot of stuff going on. I'm glad you mentioned the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association. One year I was asked to speak at GDC on behalf of the IGDA with a bunch of student scholarship winners I remember getting on a bus of about 30 students and the number one question was around what you both outlined in your introduction. I asked everyone on the bus, what degree program are you in? One said healthcare, one said fashion design, another said astronomy, and they all wanted to know how they could leverage their degree to get into the gaming industry. And Joni, I think you said it. Ultimately, what is your passion? Are these similar themes that you hear when coaching young people coming up in this space? Absolutely. There's there's always imposter syndrome. There's always the idea that maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not the right person. But you would have that in any industry. So I think it's just that you care so much about gaming that you want to find that direct correlation, uh, especially women and underserved people, um, underrepresented people within the industry. They're they're constantly trying to prove that they belong at the table. And so they need this narrative in their head to explain why they're there and why they deserve this seat and why they deserve this spot. Uh, so one of the biggest things that we really focus on during our mentorship programs is recognizing that imposter syndrome, overcoming that imposter syndrome, silencing that imposter syndrome. But there is always that correlation between what is it that you're passionate about? What is it that you're excited about? If you care this much that you need a narrative that you can tell yourself before you fall asleep, you care, you want to be here, you're in the right space and you just need to find that link. Um, we, we support the full, like the global games industry. So it's, it's video games, tabletop and esports. And so we are, we're really trying to encompass just diversity and representation within all of these different sectors. So Everything from legal teams needing, you need legal advice, especially if you're an eSports organization, um, uh, doctors helping people with posture and just are they sitting correctly and are they, you know, getting the most out of their time and their mental health is a huge thing. Um, there's, there's so many pathways and there's so many opportunities. And if there isn't one that you love right now, create it. There's so many amazing new opportunities since even I got into the industry that there's that were, they didn't exist back then. And, and it's beyond social media. You know, it's beyond just being a TikTok person. It's, it's 
there's so many more extra pieces that if you can prove the worth and why this position or this job or this role needs to be within the organization, people will listen. People want to grow. They want to continue to develop their studios, develop their games and develop these opportunities. We do get a lot of people that come in and they're like, well, I have 12 years of experience, but it's in this thing. So should I start in Q&A? And we're like, no, use that experience. Do make a transferable, you know, when you, when you move into the industry. And so we talk a lot about navigating our careers from one industry into the next. Um, you're not starting over, you're starting different. And so there's a huge opportunity to transition as well. We get that question a lot for sure. The only thing I would add to that is that, because I think that's exactly right, fantastic advice. And I mentor a lot of young people who want to get in this industry and and people who are, are more experienced who, like Joni said, have a they've already been working in a career for years and they want to get in this industry. And to me, it, it really comes down to how do you determine how your skill set best fits within this industry. And you have to do quite a bit of homework to figure that out because the game industry is so is constantly evolving and it's constantly changing and there's new roles that are popping up all the time in response to different technologies that are being developed or different narrative approaches. I mean, that's one of the things I love about this industry is I often mention in some of the lectures I give is that we are at the forefront of basically evolving how humans tell stories from one generation to another. And that doesn't mean all the other forms of communication are invalid. I mean, they're still around, you know, literature and film and television and radio and all these other forms of media. But I look at us and I say, we are really at the forefront of how that's evolving and how that's becoming, you know, in adding the interactive dimension to storytelling and how we pass those stories along. And that to me is super exciting. And when I mention that to people, I'm like, you know, take it seriously. You know, I, sometimes I talk with young people and they're like, I'm just a student or I'm just a whatever. And I'm like, you're not just anything. You are the future of this industry. Whether you, you know, see yourself that way or not, you are the future of this industry. And especially for people who don't necessarily go to school for game design or game programming or something, we need desperately those other viewpoints that are outside of kind of that that narrow way of thinking, like I'm a game designer. Like, that's great. We need those people too. But we also need people from a vast array of fields who can add to the collective knowledge of the industry and help us figure out how do we go forward. But a lot of that, especially if you're coming at this from outside of traditional function within the game industry, you really have to be imaginative about how your skills fit here. And you might just have to get really creative. You know, I one of the key pieces of advice I give young people, and maybe this is not a, appropriate post-pandemic, but I, I gave this advice pre-pandemic, as I said, you need to become a virus, but which basically I mean is like find a job at a game company that you would like to work for. It's not going to be your dream job. I mean, far from it. It'll probably be some basic thing, but, you know, or just some other function like Joni mentioned, you know accounting and finance background, you know, maybe start there. If you want to work more on the creative side, that's great, but start, start where you have the skill. And once you're in the company, then you can infect them from within exactly like a virus does with the really cool ideas you have for the other skills that you bring to the table. And I often find that doing it from within is far easier than trying to approach from the outside, you know, and try to say, Hey, I'm a consultant. I can help you with this. It's like, well, yeah, prove it show me how you can help us. But doing it from within often is a, is a really effective approach. And yeah, you might have to spend a few years doing a job that's not ideal, but we all do that. That's not new. We talk about the transferable skills from outside the industry to inside the industry. 
We also know that video games have had a massive impact on other industries, setting up virtual worlds to accelerate learning, cryptocurrencies is all video game based, architectural planning, healthcare. But what is the role of video games if we think about this from an inclusion perspective? Well, I mean, my my response to that is pretty s- simple, I guess. Is like I I see games. One of the most powerful things about games as a as a medium is that it is an empathy engine, and I think it's an empathy engine in a way that is far more effective than film and television and other forms of more passive entertainment, where you're just basically just sitting back and watching something. I mean, certainly there's all these other mediums that can evoke emotion and evoke thought provoking, you know, changes to to how you approach things. But I think games have that potential to do it even far more because you are actually experiencing it, interacting um, as the character, interacting in that place of somebody, you know, whoever it might be in a different time, in a different culture, a different race, whatever it could be. And I think we have that potential that I still don't think has been fully realized in the games medium. We're, We're starting to see great games come out that really explore the, the power of empathy through games. But, you know, I think we're only scratching the surface still. And I think as games continue to, to continue to evolve and explore these narratives that are more, I would say, dealing with challenging themes that we confront every day in our real world lives, I think it's going to be even more evident the power that games really have. And so I think it, it has the potential for being really fundamentally game-changing pun, I guess, intended for a lot of people, because it's like if you actually you can watch a story on a movie about a certain cultural group or something, you can feel, you know, a a response to it. But I think if you have the chance to actually role play as that person in a game and experience what life would be like for that person or for that culture, whether it is a real world based game or whether it's a fantasy game that uses allegory, as many of them do, I think it has tremendous potential to help people understand you know, really what's going on or, or to think about things differently. So I'm, I'm really excited for that potential. Not only experience it, but normalize it. It really creates that normalization that this, there's so many different opportunities to be different characters, to look different ways, to have different classes, to have different skills, and to work together as a team. You know, I play Warcraft a lot, and, and my partner and I played for over, gosh, too long. <laughs> we started in 2006. And I love playing a holy priest. I love being the healer. I love having that opportunity. I also love being an undead holy priest because I just think it's so funny that I'm reviving people when I'm dead. My partner loves to be, you know, the, the tank. And so having those two classes together, we can just level really quickly. And and so it's it's that opportunity to see that you're not the same and you have very different skills and that's why you're doing so well. If we were both squishies, we'd be dying all the time. So we have that opportunity to normalize working together, to normalize using different skill sets is going to be the thing that gets us ahead. Um, and I'm sorry, I keep going to Warcraft, that's my game. Uh, but, you know, we have this, this guild and we have these different people who pick their character based Based on how they feel represented and I think having somebody cry because they they feel seen in a game as they're trying to create their character or they feel represented in a space because there's a story that relates to them or to their upbringing that nobody else is telling is is a really powerful opportunity and tool and we see a lot of what we call revenge studios where people are so fed up with what they're being fed at this one studio they go off and they create their own studio uh, I love revenge studios I love the first game that comes out of a revenge studio it's always the most like just gritty in your face and like powerful storytelling game you know and so 
there's that huge opportunity to create that representation and, and create that story for you. And, and you don't know how many people it's going to resonate with and how many more games it's going to create because nobody else has seen that representation. Uh, we see it a lot with, with uh, Laura Croft. That was huge. That was, that was pivotal for me as, as a girl to not be the damsel in distress being carried from castle to castle, to finally be the person who is solving the puzzles and be the person who is able to do the combat and, 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 really be smart and and be a smart woman who is playing a game it was really a powerful story and now with alloy i am i am obsessed with alloy and uh my daughter watching you know just playing with me or, or watching me play and she's just like that could be me you know and having that representation it's it's so powerful and i think we're doing a lot to kind of move in the way of of again normalizing those stories and just creating space for people to then continue to have those conversations and creating that opportunity is so is so huge and that's piece that we're really trying to push especially with how people are creating the games making sure that you're bringing in those people with those backgrounds and those stories to create those games so it's not that performative but actually truly that authentic storytelling if we were to overly simplify the gender conversation and ask a lot of people I believe the perception would be that there are more women playing video games today than there were, say, 20 years ago. But statistically, over the course of the last 20 years, the average has remained the same, around 45 47%. Do you have any insights as to why this is the case? I think a lot of it is that people weren't identifying themselves as gamers and and now it's kind of normalizing it. So even when I was in high school, I didn't talk to anybody about gaming because I felt like it would be weird and I didn't want to be weird in high school. Uh, I was weird enough on other things that I, I could leave that one behind. But, you know, even everything from mobile gamers to my mom was obsessed with the farming game on Facebook. Uh, she'd never considered herself a gamer. And so I think kind of changing the identity of what what does it mean to be a gamer has really opened a lot of people's eyes to maybe maybe my obsession with my mobile game for you know six hours a day is making me a gamer uh, and I think I think there's a, a lot more acceptance around women being gamers as well now too and so people kind of are, are coming into the realization that they are a gamer so instead of just saying are you a gamer the question now becomes do you play on a mobile device? any games on a mobile device. And so people are saying, yes, I play on a mobile. Yes, I do play on uh, a PC. Yes, I do play on a console. And so the label of gamer is now being changed to a question of actual usage and actual, you know, what are you doing? And so then, okay, you you do game. So you are a gamer. That's one of the biggest shifts that I've, I've kind of seen personally. Yeah, I, I would agree 100% because I've had many conversations with people. I mean, I I look for people who are playing games, especially women, you know, especially if they're older women, you know, like if you're at the grocery store and you're in a long line or something like that. And I see someone playing a game, you know, and so I'll just butt in and I'll say, oh, you know, that's cool. You So you're a gamer. They'll be like, no, I'm not one of those. I'm not a gamer. I'm not one of those. Yeah, because to them, what is a gamer? It's some teenage male in the mom's basement, blah, 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 the same old narrative, which is completely, you know, uh, false these days. I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's still true today, but I know it was a few years ago where the fastest growing group among gamers was for 30 and 40 something women was by far the fastest growing group. And when I would quote that to people who are outside the game industry, they'd be like, no, that can't be true. 
there's no way that's true. It's like, it is. I mean, that's the statistics. We know we're the industry. We understand this. But because the media has, has often written that narrative over and over again, that gamers are young males, uh, it just people it, find it really hard to get past that. And I think we're still finding that to, the, to a degree today. But I, I agree that, that that percentage shift is really, I think, more due to the fact that that term has been more widely adopted as that's just, again, something that people do, any people do, not just a certain demographic. I think too, as you mentioned earlier with the pandemic, it, it was, you know, video games are bad. Video games are causing violence. Video games are an addiction. And then during the pandemic, it was like video games might be saving a lot of lives right now. Video games might be your space for mental health. VR might be the opportunity for you to go outside and interact. And, you know, Pokemon Go might be the reason people are actually leaving their homes to go and play a game. So I, I think it, it kind of made it not a bad thing. And because it, it became a, a positive a title that you could then accept. A lot of people were also more excited to accept the the gamer title as well. And I, I would just add, I I think really, I mean, it's I don't think it's too far to say that I think the pandemic really was a major shift in perception about the game industry and the role of games. And um, I, because I I I think it just it really did normalize it, like Joni mentioned. And I think that's that's going to just carry forward. So, I mean, if there's one good thing that came out of it, I mean, at least for the game industry, I I think that's a major point. The three of us are well aware that the gaming community is relatively small, but also extremely strong. It's one of the staples of games. But how is this community evolving? Not just from the pandemic, but looking forward, what is the community going to become? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's one of the things I look at very closely in relation, relation to my culturalization work, because so much of the reaction that we get to the game content obviously is being fueled by community reaction. Um, you know, it's not just just the, the social media factor, even though it's a big part of it, but it's essentially how does the community opt to react to something or or not to react or however they're going to respond to something that's in the game, whether it's a feature change or a new character or, you know, an underrepresented group that is now featured or whatever the, whatever the case might be. I think that a lot of game companies, they certainly understand by now that community is absolutely fundamental to their success. And a lot of companies spend a tremendous amount of time investing in the community engagement, having teams of community managers, which frankly, in my view, are still the unsung heroes of this industry at the moment. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very difficult job for which they need to be paid more and there needs to be more of them in my view, but it's really difficult because you're dealing with, like you said, there are episodes of toxicity that happen. Um, even in good communities, there are always some episodes that happen with bad players who happen to be in the community or other issues. But ultimately I think what's, what's really great about it is that it's that collective love of that particular game of games in general, but also of that particular game that really helps to self-regulate the community to a big degree. And we, we see that happening a lot across many different franchises and games. And so the role of community managers is more or less to keep shepherding that dynamic where they self-police because nobody wants the game to be, you know, shut down. Nobody wants there to be a huge disruption of any kind. And so it's in everybody's best interest to basically police together, you know, kind of like what 
Riot did, where they actually implemented that system where you get positively reinforced for uh, for reporting bad players and bad actors within the community. You know, rather than just issuing a report, you actually get rewarded in a way for helping out and helping to self-police the community. And I think we're going to see even more robust tools do that. I mean, of course, we're seeing a lot of AI tools being developed now, which are helping with community management, because that is, to me, the biggest challenge with community management is the uh, the asymmetrical problem where you've got a even if you have a team of 50 community managers, you know, if you're like talking about Warcraft, how many millions of players are there, you know, that you have to, so that asymmetry between the, the regulation team or the oversight team and the community is always going to be there. And so you have to find other ways to deal with it. And I think the AI tools are helping out too. So, but I, I just think as we move along, companies are going to to even more and better understand how to engage the community and realize that, you know, the game itself is obviously important because that's around which the community congeals, but the community itself is really in the long term where the success lies. The the success of Warcraft, for example, as a franchise is is I would say is squarely on the shoulders of the community that has kept it going and not just the game itself. No, I, I totally agree. And I think AI has really, really helped increase that opportunity for that reporting to have very real consequences. And so it kind of becomes like, well, I don't want to get banned for a week because I don't know what I would do. I'd be so bored. So that people kind of stop engaging in certain activities or um, they just want to avoid it altogether. So uh, that that response time, having those very real rules, having those very real consequences, and then having an AI bot say this was bad enough to ban you until a real person can review it um, has, has been very, very powerful for sure. We've also also seen a big shift with influencers. So having an influencer play a game who either is encouraging or discouraging certain behaviors has been really powerful because all of those viewers are also understanding and, and realizing that maybe this was a joke, maybe this wasn't acceptable, maybe this was something that truly affected somebody else. And having it be a real person who's playing a game kind of takes away that robotic aspect and, and makes it a real human being. So having these like really powerful just forward-facing influencers has created an amazing shift in some communities, um, has also created a terrible shift in other communities. So it's, you know, give and take. And we've also seen a lot of new communities coming up as well. So I was a huge CSGO fan. I still love the game, but the community has always been incredibly toxic. And, you know, there's a lot of psychological studies about when you come on as on the mic as a, as a woman uh, and you have a more femme-identifying voice, it was actually that the other players were feeling like you were trying to trick them because your skin is a male, but they're all male skins you can't opt to be a female in CSGO so there's no way that I can help you with that problem so um, all of a sudden Valorant came out and now you can kind of choose what you look like but there's also an opportunity to create a new community and to recreate what that looks like so there's a lot of trying to fix old communities that's happening but there's also a lot of shifts into it, maybe this is just how this space is going to be so let's create a new space that is more welcoming so um, we've definitely kind of seen a lot of those shifts as well. If a young woman listening to this episode right now is trying to get into the gaming industry today, what's your advice for her? Well, I, I would say, first of all, uh, as we've kind of mentioned before, make sure you identify what exactly your passion is. What about the game industry excites you and what what role do you want to have in the industry? Because there's many different things you could do. So basically identify that passion. And once you've identified it, then be unashamedly uh, out there 
you know, networking like crazy. Don't be shy. It's hard. I know. I mean, I'm an introvert. I can fake extroversion really well. Um, but you need to basically put yourself out there as much as you can and network, find mentors and, and do the best you can to just start making connections because ultimately that's how jobs happen is is making those connections and talking with people about what you're passionate about and what you can bring to the table. Thank you both. I loved this conversation and appreciate both of you for being here today. Thank you very much. It was great. And thanks to all of you who are listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite platform and leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve, grow, and reach a wider audience. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for the show, you can connect with us throughout social media and online at Chris Hood Show or chrishood.com. And please share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, or anyone looking to grow their business and start their own digital evolution. Until next week, take care and stay connected.